0: Do you love the X-Men movies? What about the comics? Did you sit on the living room floor wrapped in a blanket eating cereal when the X-Men cartoons were on? Now's your chance to join my co-hosts and I as we dissect the movies chapter by chapter. We'll talk comics, cartoons, and video games. If it's even tangentially related to the X-Men, we'll be talking about it. So come join us and our outstanding guests as we traverse the many X-Men universes. Find us at xminutespodcast.com or a podcaster of your choice by searching for X-Minutes Podcast Excelsior. That's a growler. Welcome back to Beauty and the Beast Lee Minute, the podcast where we break down and analyze Beauty and the Beast. One angry mob at a time. I'm Bobby from Growler Media.
1: And I'm Carrie from the LDS Dating Podcast.
0: And we are your hosts for Beauty and the Beastly Minute. And today, we are talking about Minute 67 of Beauty and the Beast, which starts off with Monsieur D'Arc saying, We'll take good care of him. And ends with Gaston saying, have it your way. Yes. Yes, it does. All right. Well, my first note of this minute is I, I like, I guess, the contradiction of, uh, of Monsieur D'Arc saying, we'll take good care of him, like, while gesturing at the ominous, crazy carriage that has bars on the window and has, like, this giant people-grabbing pole and, like, a little pitcher, not a pitcher, a dipper to give people water in the carriage because they're not letting him out anytime soon, so kind of a kind of a contradiction there and it's it's not just that it's a contradiction it's that like he knows it is and he's like flaunting the fact that i don't know like what what is he even trying to do because like we're taking good care of him but it's like hey i'm obviously not gonna take good care of him
1: it's just what you say when you're in that business of running an asylum <laughs> <laughs> i mean really isn't that always the case like I think of even mental patients now. I mean, they say they're going to take good care of them, but they know they're going to wrestle him down to the floor if they're getting out of hand and stuff. That's part of taking good care of them, I guess. So In
0: the last minute, did he actually... Does Belle know who he is yet? Maybe that's...
1: Oh, I good mean, we question. know who he is
0: because we saw him with Gaston and LeFou, but she probably doesn't know who he is. So this is his introducing himself because so far he said... You know, I'm here to collect your father. And she's like, my father. And what, how did we end last?
1: She does answer the door and not seem to know who he is. Doesn't she say, like, may I help you or something?
0: Yeah. And then he says he's there to collect her father. And I think that's where we ended. And now he's saying, you know, we'll take good care of him. So it's just this old guy. I'm here to get your father. My dad? Oh, yeah, we'll take good care of him. And that's when he presents himself as the uh, asylum what are they called? Director. Caretaker? Director? Warden? <laughs> so, yeah, this is his introduction. Okay, that makes a lot more sense because I was like, why would. I mean, I know he's the evil guy, but it still seemed a little off that he's like, we'll take good care of him. Um, but he's. He's letting her know who he is and that her dad is going to the crazy bin. And that's why she says, my father's not crazy.
1: Yeah, because for all she knew, he could have just been like an old friend of her father's. He is pretty old himself. so
0: Yeah, or just taking him to a normal hospital since he is sick.
1: Uh, yeah, he's sick. Word could have got around because, you know, Lufu is outside her house. Not that she knew it, but I mean, Philippe goes to get help from people. So, he- yeah. He could have done something after chomping that grass.
0: Maurice is sick, guys. Let's rouse the town in the middle of the night to go to his house and get him with pitchforks and torches.
1: Totally normal. Take him to the hospital. Well, he was probably suffering from hypothermia, so torches would make sense.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So I did have a couple notes on the carriage here itself. We have some interesting details on it. Like I said, we've got a dipper by the door so that you can uh, just like spoon people water. You don't have to open the door to let them have water for those long rides to the asylum. Or, you know, I guess if they let you get out every once in a while, get some fresh air in a carriage ride, probably not. But (laughs) (laughs) the other thing that caught my attention is on the back of this carriage, I don't think I've ever noticed it before, but it's got this big giant pole thing with like a little hook type thing on the end. And I was like, is that for grabbing people by the neck? And it is. Um, so I did some research into them and they're either called a catch pole or a man catcher. And uh, apparently it was a, a fairly common thing to have, like dating back before who knows when. So if you look up catch pole or man catcher, you'll pop up all these Images and Wikipedia and stuff uh, about these poles that they used to use to catch people. And mostly it sounds like they were used for catching criminals and during battles. Like you would use them if you were trying to catch a noble or somebody. You didn't want to kill them, but you wanted to, to catch them and keep them alive. So they had these long poles and most of them had. Kind of like a a rounded fork, I guess. How would you how would you describe that shape? It's kind of
1: well. It kind of reminds me of like the dog catcher pole in Lady and the Tramp, except the end of that the loop was like you know soft. It was kind of flexible, like a rubber loop or something. Uh-huh. This one is kind of more like. Uh- <laughs> It is kind of weird to describe. It's it's almost a full circle, but it's open at the end. So, it's right. it has basically those two points that come together at the top of the circle at the end of the pole.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, most... That's what I first thought of was like something for catching animals. And it looks like most of those either have like a, a, a strap or a rope or a cable on the end of them. And so one end has the loop and the other end you can pull the loop tight and it just you know pulls it smaller. And that's how you hold them by the neck. You get it over their head and you tighten it around their neck. But with the with the man catcher, it's like you said, it's got like two arms that curve around and almost form a circle and then there are a bunch of different variations on it. This one, it looks like the two arms are spring loaded and they're kind of hooked on the ends where they meet in the middle. So You've got these two half circles with hooks on the end where they meet together. That way you can push it around somebody's neck and the springs will allow it to open and then close back up when their neck has gone in it. And then the two little pointed hooks on the ends will keep you from trying to push your way out of it because you push against where you came in, like when it opened up to let you in. There are now those points there that are going to stab you in the neck if you try to get out. Yeah, that's pretty common. And most of the ones that were actually used in medieval times, a lot of them had spring loaded kind of entrances. So you could push it around somebody's neck and then the springs would pop it open or, or pop it closed either way so that uh, they couldn't get out. And then there were even some of them that along the inside of it, it was more like a collar and then just part of it was opened up and it had the the opening mechanism, but the, the collar side of it, like the three quarters or whatever, that was a circular collar, it had spikes on the inside of it. So as soon as your neck got in there, like you would stop moving because if you try to jerk around or anything, you'd have these spikes digging into your neck. Yeah. yeah so it's, uh, there's some pretty vicious ones out there and they were used all over the place. There's... You know, they come from different countries, different styles, but they were used a lot in battle, apparently, like I said, to catch nobility that you wanted to catch. You didn't mind if you herded them, but you didn't want to kill them. And then uh, they turned into a a tool for law enforcement for catching criminals for a while there when you you wanted to catch them and not kill them. So, yeah.
1: I'm glad they didn't use that on Maurice because that would have been really scary.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, and this one is not as vicious as most of the ones that I saw. And that's probably because if you're dealing with crazy people, you know, they're not really going to be reasonable. So they just thrash around and hurt themselves. So this one just wants to catch them and hold them. But uh, pretty scary.
1: Yeah, I'm glad they don't do that as much anymore. Although I imagine people who are in the profession might like something that's, you know, like a 10 foot pole or whatever this is, nine and a half foot pole. Mm-hmm. That way they wouldn't have to, you know, be so hands on, physical and... Then they're at risk for getting hurt by the crazy person. Yeah. So, nowadays it's more humane for the crazy person, more dangerous for the person trying to catch them. I guess they do sedate, too, like tranquilizers.
0: Yeah, they use a lot more drugs now. Yeah. More drugs, less torture. (laughs) Ah, progress. (laughs) So my next note here is around second 4. We get some angry Bell. This is when she she says, "My father's not crazy." And she comes out of her door and her face goes from shocked to angry and uh dark. He's he just like puts up his hands and starts backing up, man. She he's not ready for the for the fury of Bell. And uh we haven't really seen Bell angry yet. I mean, we've seen a lot of Bell in this movie. But I think this is the first time we really see her mad. And uh, it's an interesting look. I mean, she's got a lot of other emotions going on, but she's definitely got a lot of anger here at the beginning of this minute.
1: I don't know if I'd really call it anger. I mean, she's definitely being defensive, but I feel like it's coming more of like a a place of shock than anger.
0: Well, she has an angry face, whatever the emotion. (laughs) I wouldn't call it a shocked shocked face when she's going after a... going after the caretaker.
1: Yeah, I guess that's true. It does look like an angry face. It's ferocious power aggression. She's definitely on the defensive. That's for sure.
0: Yeah. And then one of the things that bugs me throughout this minute is that uh, they were not very consistent in how they lit the inside of the cottage. So it's going to keep flicking back and forth between being dark inside the cottage and like really brightly lit inside the cottage. So when we first start out the minute, she's opened the door and we see behind her, it's very dark inside. We see her coming out of the dark doorway. And then when it moves to show Fu, she's already outside of the cottage and it's very brightly lit inside. There's light coming out the windows. And we'll see that flip flop back and forth as we see more recent in, in the cottage during the rest of this minute.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how they let that slip through. Like it seems kinda simple. I, I even feel like they should have maybe kept that front window lit the full time because if you know, that's like Maurice's room or something, they had the candles mm-hmm. burning in there, that would make sense. But I mean that front room was definitely dark and I feel like that should have been easy to keep consistent. Yeah. But they were rushed. We we pardon them for a lot of things.
0: Yeah, and I wonder, um, I wish we had the animators that did this part on. I wonder if we they had, like, different people doing, like, different parts. Like, hey, okay, we've got, you know, one person doing the close-up scene, which they probably did with, you know, Belle and D'Arc here. And so we've got one background artist working on that. And then we've got a, a separate background artist working on the scene where we've got Lafu talking to the the mob. So most likely that's what happened. We just had two different people working on it and a different idea of what it should look like. And then uh, maybe they noticed it and were like, eh, not worth changing.
1: The kids won't care.
0: (laughs) We will 20 years later.
1: (laughs) (laughs) They didn't know podcasts were going to happen. Not anyone would dissect it a minute at a time. It was meant for us as babies. Yeah. I was a newborn when this came out. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: No. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: we've also got a uh, guest and he's just like chilling on the cellar doors it's like sitting there hands folded kind of in the dark in the background shadows just watching his plan unfold so i, I thought it was kind of interesting how he's just like taking a back seat and letting Lafu kind of run the show here and get things stirred up and then he's gonna jump in and, and be the solution guy so I think a lot of times we see the villains in movies, especially in Disney movies, and, you know, they're they're dumb. And we're like, they make dumb mistakes. And Gaston, I think we've seen a few times, he's not as dumb and like as outright bad as we think he is. So we, if you put a little more thought into what he's doing and how he's doing it, you see that he's, you know, he's not as dumb as we think he is. So here, you know, if he was the one stirring up the crowd and getting things going then he wouldn't be able to come to Belle as the solution guy, which she rejects anyway. But, uh, you know, that's his plan is to let other people stir up the crowd and get things going, and then he comes in and tries to save the day. But it doesn't work.
1: Yeah, I mean, Gaston's really an interesting villain in comparison to the others because they did have to try to make him like, okay, he's this guy that the village thinks is good, but he's really the bad guy. So he's got to be like this strong, protective, handsome but also very, you know, selfish. And he's a really interesting villain in that way that he's so he he could go either way, depending on whose eyes you're looking from the village or the beast or Belle. So but I I like how you pointed out that like, he just looks so at ease over there. I mean, he doesn't even look he's not even standing on both feet. He's like, leaning one foot on that cellar door just so relaxed looking like i'm about to throw bell's father into an asylum just to get my way and get her to marry me like <laughs> he why is he so he doesn't look nervous about this at all he thinks it's gonna work out he doesn't think it's really wrong like he's just so comfortable looking it's yeah It's a interesting pose they gave him for sure. Very. It says a lot about him. That's for sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And he's he's just a very interesting character. I one of the things I guess I like about him is that he didn't start off as a villain. He started off as just an arrogant guy. And then we get to see his progression in the movie becoming a villain and the decisions he's making to have that happen. So it's not just here's the bad guy. It's here's a guy that turned into the bad guy because he made bad choices. Mm-hmm. And we have some more awesome flame animation from uh, Lafou's torch at the beginning of the minute here. They just did such a good job on the flames in this movie.
1: All of the flames on these torches, they're all like nice and spirally and they're all different. Like I kept looking to see, did they just, you know, copy and paste flames on the different torches? But it looks like they all have a different flame going on at the same time.
0: Yeah, I mean, they put a lot of time into these into these flame drawings. You can go frame by frame and each frame is different. You know, the, the outline of the flames, the little mini flames coming off them, the colors and shading. And I mean, each of these, every single frame is different. So they didn't uh, cut any corners when they were making these, which they, they very easily could have. But again, these are the details that make Beauty and the Beast this awesome work of animation where a lot of other cartoons and stuff, they just don't cut it because they didn't put in the time to really put in these details that make it look amazing.
1: Mm-hmm. True.
0: Yes. And LeFou has really bad teeth. We get a good look at his teeth and they are not pretty.
1: I feel like uh, the main way they try to make LeFou look bad is in his looks. I mean, <laughs> he doesn't have a whole lot going on the the conniving the plan and stuff. So I feel like he just looks weird and, you know, he falls along. his His looks really go along with his character. Like he just is this goofball that... Does whatever Gaston wants him to do. Yeah. He's just a fool.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, uh let me see. Where are we? Second eight. Uh, we get a close-up on some of the villagers. And it looks like we have the baker. the I think he's the fish seller guy. The guy that's selling fish in the village when Belle's uh, first singing.
1: Bald guy with the mustache.
0: Yeah, the bald guy with the mustache. He's got a pitchfork here. But I'm pretty sure he was selling fish. And then we have the... The bald lady, the wig lady. That, so they're all three here.
1: That doesn't look like the bald lady to me. Is that not her?
0: Who is that? I definitely recognize that lady. Mm,
1: she, mm, no, I don't know. Especially with her hat. Her hat's kind of like boxy and it's got that top, kind of like a flat graduation hat top.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, you're right. That's definitely not the, not the bald lady. Yeah,
1: the bald lady had kind of like a doll face.
0: But I know I recognize that lady.
1: I don't recognize. Well, when I first saw her, uh-huh. I thought maybe she was the the lady who said I need six eggs, but that's not right either.
0: Okay, so in uh, minute four, yeah, minute four, she's walking through the village. We've got the baker. He says, he says, Maurice the baker, it's hurry up. And then the we have two ladies and they say, look there she goes, the girl that's strange, no question. And that's one of the ladies. Boom. Second 22, minute four.
1: ah! Uh-huh. you found it, babe. Good job. I knew she was in there.
0: Dun-dun-dun. Now I'm looking for the fish guy. Oh, no, he's not the fish guy. He's the egg guy.
1: Well, we got one out of three right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, yeah, we have three of the first people we see really well when she goes into town.
1: The bell song.
0: Yeah, the the baker... One of the ladies that doesn't like her and the egg guy, which makes sense why he has a pitchfork. I was going to say, it doesn't make sense that the fish seller has a pitchfork. Why does a fish guy need a pitchfork? But if he's the egg guy, he's taking care of chickens and cleaning out their coops with hay and all that stuff.
1: Mm. Anyone can get a pitchfork though.
0: It's true, but why would a fish guy need one? I mean, come on.
1: He could keep chickens as well. Like everyone just has to do one thing. Well, it doesn't matter because he's the chicken guy. Okay, okay. Oh, I had a note. I actually forgot to write it down. On the asylum carriage, it says Asylum de Lunes or something like that. Loons. Mm-hmm. And I was reading on the fandom page for Beauty and the Beast, and someone was like, in, um, they said in the books or in earlier versions, the, The asylum was actually called Les Mesons de Lunes, or something like Mm -hmm. that. And I was like, well, why don't they just keep that? But I guess that just means moon house. And that doesn't seem to be indicative, especially for kids, of what is actually going on. So I guess they were just like, oh, throw that out the window. We need it to say that it's... The Asylum for Loons, which I don't know if kids know either of those words either. I don't remember (laughs) trying to read The Carriage, so I don't know. I guess it simplifies it though.
0: Yeah, we talked about this uh, when we first saw The Carriage and uh, it pretty much doesn't make a lot of sense as far as it wouldn't actually look like that because we're mixing languages and so in the original one it makes more sense in the French sense of things. This one is mixing some English and some French and uh, it just, it wouldn't say that, but yeah, we think it's just, that's what they did so that we'd have a better idea what it was without actually having them come out and say, Hey, this is a crazy asylum, a psychiatric asylum, whatever.
1: Yeah.
0: And, uh, yeah.
1: We know Belle can read. Maybe she can read French and English, and it doesn't matter which one they put it in. The text is for her benefit alone. They didn't even have it on the carriage before they came.
0: It does look like it's just a piece of of parchment or paper or cloth or something tacked onto the side of the wagon.
1: I uh, see. Maybe they did just add it. <laughs> they, they only put it on there before they go collect father's.
0: But it's definitely like a prison type carriage. So maybe it's the police carriage and like they just borrow it when they have to go pick up a crazy person. Mm. That would make a lot more sense why it's got like, well, I mean, I could still see why they'd have bars and all these restraining things for really crazy out of control people. But it would definitely make more sense if it was like a prison wagon that the police used.
1: Good thinking. It doubles as the police wagon.
0: So I did a lot of uh, looking into... Asylums and uh, psychiatric treatment in France in the time period. And we didn't really get too much into this when we first talked about this topic. When we first met Monsieur de Arc and and saw the the crazy wagon, we talked a little bit about it. I think it was with Crystal Beth, but that was more kind of just on psychiatric treatment in general. And that was because I couldn't really find much on French psychiatric treatment. And it wasn't until I actually started searching in French that I found some stuff, which was kind of hard to do because my French is not very good. <laughs> <laughs> so reading all of these like articles about the, the history and progression of psychiatric treatment in France, a lot of words I didn't know. So definitely some Google Translate going on there, but I was able to find a little bit more information. And unfortunately, most of what I found kind of post dates where we are in time. And so basically there were several different articles and stuff pulled from different books written about psychiatric treatment and its its progression in France. And basically they were like in the medieval times like people thought you were possessed by demons or like witchcraft and you basically were best case scenario your family took really bad care of you or they tried to take good care of you and you just lived in horrible conditions anyway because everybody was poor and didn't know what was going on. And worst case scenario, you were imprisoned and tortured and burned at the stake for having demons or witchcraft or whatever. So uh, that was like, The Middle Ages and then kind of more towards this time period, the the Renaissance things started changing and getting a little bit better, but it wasn't really until right around the French Revolution, which is about where this movie takes place. We're estimating this was like 1782 and the revolution was like 1789, if I'm remembering right. And it was kind of during and after the French Revolution that there were several different doctors and psychiatrists or whatever that came out and wrote these papers or whatever, that kind of changed the idea of psychiatric treatment in France at the time and kind of revolutionized the industry to be from, hey, we're throwing these people in jail and we're just keep them trapped there and not really treat them or do crazy things that we think are going to fix them that are really just mutilating them to these people actually need treatment and trying to learn how to help them. And that's kind of where the modern psychiatric treatment was birthed and kind of grew into. So uh, this is kind of an interesting era where he might have seen either of those two. And we kind of see a mix of that. They're going to treat him as a prisoner and probably just take him and throw him in a dungeon. And that's going to be his treatment based off of Monsieur Dark and his attitude so far. We see that he's kind of corrupt, not a nice guy. So most likely he's just kind of milking this uh this position that he's been granted and he probably just throws people in dungeons and you know keeps them alive barely so that he can keep getting his his pay and uh so it's a good thing that Maurice doesn't end up in there cuz he probably would have died since he was already a little bit sick but if he didn't then he be stuck in there for years and years with horrible treatment until if he survived the french revolution maybe he'd start to get better treatment uh in you know like 10 or 15 years yay
1: but he's sick so he would probably have died quick yeah i mean supposedly he's sick he doesn't seem sick anymore but he Mm -hmm. history is crazy man especially medical history they did so many weird things yeah i wonder if we're going to look back and think that on our time when we're old people. Mm-hmm. Like, man, I can't believe they were treating everyone for, you know, autism. Now we know it's blah, blah, blah.
0: You don't know what you know. No, you don't know what you don't know.
1: Yeah, <laughs> you don't know what you know.
0: <laughs> Speaking of which, um, Belle here, I feel like she should have known to tell Maurice, hey, these guys are looking for you. Don't come out. Of course, you know, she's caught up in the moment and doesn't... Think about that. She's thinking about what LeFou is saying and trying to defend her father. And then Maurice pokes his head out and just like comes out of the house towards the angry mob. And that's not a good move. If you got an angry mob outside your house trying to collect you, you go inside and close the door. You don't come out into the mob
1: well I'm sure he didn't hear any of that he was in the back room
0: I guess that's true
1: so yeah because when he gets to the door he's like Belle like what's taking so long what's going on over here you've been gone for a couple minutes and I what's going on over here do you need my help like he doesn't know what's going on maybe maybe Gaston's trying to marry her by force Hmm. this monsieur dark could be the reverend or whatever (laughs) (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> He'll, the point is, I don't think he knows. But I did think that was weird, too, because it's like it's even right after she says, I won't let you. You know, Belle says, no, I won't let you. And then right at that second, Maurice pops his head out and it's like, you know, why does she not do something <laughs> if she had to actually fight for her father would would we have like ruined our idea of Belle being gentle and graceful you know because I think I think that's why they had to make him come out because if he had just stayed in the house then we, ha- we would have had to see some kind of physical thing going on between Belle and the guys trying to go in and get her father whereas you know her dad comes out and walks down the stairs he like delivers himself to the, the little asylum henchman basically so we don't have to see Belle trying to push or pull people away from her father.
0: Yeah, I guess that's a lot less traumatic for children. You don't have the home invasion and nobody's going to break in your house and grab your dad and pull him out, kicking and screaming while you're trying to fight people.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's what I was thinking, especially from like a family life research perspective. That would be pretty traumatizing. I mean, our daughter already, we tried to do... I mean, Bobby already knows this, but for listeners, we tried to do like a fire safety lesson and now our daughter is like scared to death that a fire is going to start in our house like any day. And then I tried to teach her safety like at a park if someone tries to grab her or something and now she's afraid people are <laughs> she's afraid there are bad people everywhere who are just going to snatch her up. But I'm trying to just explain to her, no, like when we go for a walk you... I want to be able to see you. that way I I know if someone grabs you or whatever, stay with me in the store. So, I mean, I'm just trying to be cautious, but now I've really made her paranoid. (laughs) (laughs) Children. So, yeah, if if we had to see Belle fight, physically fight to keep her father in the house, it would would be traumatic for a child. It's a lot more smooth this way. But uh, even before that, I had my second 10 note. That we're well past at this point. But the asylum henchman that comes out of the back of the carriage, mm-hmm. I was like, why was he back there? Especially for all this time. Like, it's been several minutes easily since the carriage arrived. So, what was he doing? Was he like back there preparing the space for Maurice? Or did he have to ride back there and he was just chilling until now? I mean, what's with this dramatic entrance of him popping the doors open and coming out, you know? (laughs) Well, he probably did have to ride back
0: there. I don't know how they're planning on doing their travel arrangements on the way back. But I mean, the carriage is only big enough. It's got the, uh, I forget what it's called, but the little seat. On the front of the carriage, that's wide enough for two people. So you probably got the Monsieur Dark who was sitting up there with the the taller henchman sitting next to him. And there's no room for a third. So he probably rode in the back, locked up in the carriage. I guess he wasn't locked up because he opened it himself.
1: Yeah, but I mean, even if he had to ride there... In the back, why wasn't he already out? Like, there's been plenty of time for everyone to arrive for the Monsieur D'Arc, however you keep saying it, Frenchy like. And the other henchmen to get off the carriage. Like, everyone's gathered around. Gaston had time to put himself in his little comfortable pose. Why did this guy wait so long to get out of the back of the carriage?
0: He was probably taking a nap. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Maybe he did just want that dramatic entrance.
1: Well, dramatic entrance achieved.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, While we're here on the porch, Maurice has come out onto the porch, Bell's out there, and then Monsieur Dark, he's he's back there in the corner of the porch. And it's kind of creepy. I never noticed it before because he's just like a creepy dude all around. But one of the ways he's so creepy here is that generally when you have an animated scene like this, you've got... The main focus character, which right now is LeFou, and then you've got a secondary character. Well, I guess like a secondary focus it would be Maurice. They're having their little back and forth. And then Belle, I guess, she she's there. She's not really doing anything besides standing there. But they still animated her um, where, you know, every few frames she's moving a little bit. Mm-hmm. She shifts. Her eyes blink. She looks around a little bit. And... You know, the same thing with Gaston. They're not really doing anything at this part, but they move a little bit. You know, they they interact and they're not as... They're not animated in as much detail as La and uh, Maurice because you're not focused on them. They're kind of in the background, so the animation's definitely not on the same level. Um, Tony was saying that's kind of like the boogermation. It's it's far away. It's small stuff. They're not focused on the big details because you're you're not paying that much attention to them. But then you've got uh, Monsieur Dark, and he's he's over here, and he's about the same size as Belle, and he's you know close to them. But I think one of the things that makes him a little extra creepy is that he does not move like everybody else. If you if you go frame by frame through the screen, you know, you got some movement from the two main characters and then you have Belle and Gaston and they have a little bit of movement. And I'm also dark. He's just there in the background like they didn't even bother changing the animation at all. And so when we change perspectives on the scenes, you get a different animated version of him. So you see him from a different angle, but throughout these scenes, like they just did that one picture, that one image of him and just left it in the scene where everything else is moving. Everyone else is moving. And he's just like this creepy frozen statue in the background until he has an important role to make. So the next time he moves is whenever he tells, you know, he motions the the henchman to come and grab Maurice. Um, but up until then, he's just kind of like, chilling back there creepy uh, because he's he's not moving at all and uh, I think they did that on purpose
1: to represent him being dead inside to everything that's happening like he doesn't care which way it goes he doesn't care who wins if maurice goes to the asylum or not
0: that's true I mean he's getting his money either way he's just he's there to perform a job he doesn't care about these people doesn't care about the outcome he's just in it for the money and he's just creepy old dead inside
1: yeah and he really looks dead i mean i think that that's (laughs) supposed to be like his personality he's just this dead inside person who wants money and he's willing to do whatever for it you know yeah so he's lifeless in this in this part they didn't even animate him because he's so dead inside
0: Yep, yep, And we have kind of a a creepy animation on him throughout. It seems like a lot of the times when we actually have close ups of him and of Gaston, um, they do a lot of the lighting from below. So you have a lot of shadows on their face and their cheekbones and stuff. And that just makes them look a little extra creepy. And it doesn't make sense as far as the lighting sources go, uh, because it's not like that on anybody else. But that just gives you that extra creepy and kind of, you know, these people are sick. There's something wrong with them feeling to it
1: yeah and i always feel weird about Gaston. like he's the only one who's got these shadowy cheeks as if he's got the torchlights all right under his chin or something mm-hmm. like even when he moves his face downwards or something it it stays the same sometimes it even gets like even more shadowy and darker so it's like why did you do that it's so weird it's
0: just to make them feel villainous
1: yeah, I guess so. I didn't notice shadows for Mr. Diarque. I feel like he just has those big old bags under his eyes that so always look like shadows, but I didn't...
0: Know. I mean, they're not as pronounced. And again, it is harder to see them because he has his, his eye bags that are already dark, but you see a lot of shadows above his eyebrows and stuff. They kind of give him that creepy shadow look as well.
1: Mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting that like Monsieur Dark I cannot say it the way you keep saying it, dr. <laughs> Uh, He kind of makes the same like wince away face when Belle is trying to hold his arm and she says you can't do this. He makes the same kind of face that Belle makes when she refuses Gaston's proposal second proposal in a second. I thought that was interesting that you know he's kind of disgusted by her like her innocence and trying to get her father back and just the same way that Belle is disgusted by Gaston trying to blackmail her into marriage.
0: Yeah, but she's so caught up in the moment uh that like she she's worried about her father and then Gaston comes and finally presents himself as as the solution to the problem and he you know wraps his arm around her and pulls her in and he's he's talking to her and she's so distraught that like that doesn't even register in her mind and she's like grabbing onto his shirt on his chest and you know that's just showing you how much turmoil she's in right now she's she doesn't even think oh i'm super close to this you know creepy jerk that i've tried to avoid at all costs before Mm -hmm. and now she's right up on him and he's got his arm wrapped around her and it doesn't even bug her until you know he says uh until like if you marry me and then she's like wait 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 what her and uh, her
1: what is so great it's kind of like cogsworth's what earlier she's like what
0: yeah yeah and that's when she she's like what and then she realizes where she is and, you know, how close she is to him and starts trying to, to push and get away from him. He, he pulls her in close and uh, I love, I love the expressions on her face at this part. I mean, they're not like happy expressions, but she, she has very expressive face and she does like her one eye squinty thing as she pushes him away. Yeah. <laughs> And she puts her hand on his face and just like shoves him off. Uh.
1: I wonder if her character at this point suspects that Gaston came up with this because she sees him as brainless. So I don't know if she could even imagine him coming up with a blackmail scheme. You know, I wonder if that's in her what? If that's her kind of realizing this could be Gaston's idea.
0: I don't know. I never really thought about it. Because, I mean, I guess she could, like, take him at his word that he just happens to be there and he's like, oh, I could probably fix this for you if you marry me. But uh, I guess I was just thought that she uh, she realized that it was, he said that and she's like, wait, you set this whole thing up. So, I guess I could, I could go either way, though.
1: Yeah, I don't know if she thinks he has the brains for something like this.
0: Yeah. The one thing I, I did think was, was pretty interesting was that twice so far in this movie, she's had the opportunity to save her father from being imprisoned for life. And the first time she had no qualms whatsoever. I mean, she had qualms, I guess, but there was very little hesitation in her decision to give up her life so that her father could go free. And this time, I mean, the the background is different, but the concept is the same. Her father is being imprisoned against his will, unjustly, and she has the opportunity to save him by giving up her life in a way. And yeah, he says it is all it takes, and she says never, and pushes him away. Yeah, then he goes have it your way. And so, why why is there the difference there? I mean, obviously, so the story can progress and she can get to know Beast and you know not end up with Gaston, but. As far as Belle, you know, if we're just looking at it from her perspective, it's the same situation. She did it the first time. She struggled with that decision, but it was definitely something that she did. You know, she chose to do it. She she wanted to to make that decision. She was willing to give that sacrifice for her father. And this time, you know, it's never. I, I would never do that. But she just did it like a few days ago. <laughs>
1: I had never noticed that. It is like the exact same situation. But you could say that now the difference is she's actually in love with the beast. So she can't ever marry someone like Gaston now that she has a kind, gentle beast that, you know, we don't know if she'd actually marry him because, you know, there are complications to that. Having children and whatnot. (laughs) But, but you know, she could happily spend her days with the Beast and be happy. I guess I just said happily spend their days left. But you know what I mean? Like, the, dif- yeah. the difference is now that she is in love and she knows happiness and she has a giant library to get back to.
0: Well, I guess <laughs> it's not even that, though. I mean, that is part of it. But I guess the, the difference that I looked overlooked is that in the first case, she submitted to being a prisoner for the rest of her life. And in the second case, she would have to actually marry Gaston. So it's not like be Gaston's prisoner in a dungeon for the rest of her life. She has to be his wife. And so that's, that's a whole different ball of wax.
1: Yeah, that's taking her dignity.
0: And that's something that she's had a lot of time to think about and decide that she definitely doesn't want to do. So in the one situation with the beast, she didn't have a ton of time to think about it and maybe didn't make the best decision. But You know, it was acting in the moment, doing what she thought was best, and she didn't fully think about the consequences. And in this case, she's thought about marrying Gaston. Maybe not like, hey, should I marry Gaston? But she knew it was something that was on the table. And so at some point, she analyzed it and realized it was not something that she wanted to do ever.
1: Yeah, that song, she says, not me, I guarantee (laughs) it.
0: Okay, well now I feel a little better.
1: But also another aspect that's different here is that maybe this isn't the only option, you know? Like when it was between saving her father from the dungeon or becoming his prisoner, those were kind of the only options. Whereas here, maybe she's thinking, well, I might still be able to get my father back from the asylum. Like there could be legal channels or something. She she did tell Monsieur Diarque that he can't do this. You know, so maybe she knows of a way to get people back from the asylum if they're not supposed to be there. Right. So get, it might not be the only option to actually become Gaston's wife in this case.
0: Have it your way then.
1: I don't think he says then. No. Almost got it. <laughs> um. Another thing, I don't know if this is before or after, I guess it's before she talks to Gaston in second 39... There's this like beautiful transition of our attention and Belle's attention from Monsieur D'Arc where she's saying, you can't do this to Gaston like slinking in behind D'Arc.
0: He's got such an evil face right there. I
1: know. But I just love, I love this transition that they did where he, like there's this moment where him and. Monsieur Jacques are like perfectly lined up, like one evil blob, and then, yeah, and then boom—he's right at Belle's side, and she's trying to get his help. She just goes from yeah. one bad guy to the next, so so smooth. I love it.
0: Yeah, it's a pretty good transition. It's nice. All right. Well, that's all I have for uh, for minute 67.
1: All right. Then I have one more thing. The music. We just got to mention the music real quick from like second 40 to the end. Basically, like from the moment her dad is taken by the henchman to the end of this minute. The music is just so good. Like if you could grab a little sound bite from it That would be great, but you probably can't because of copyright or whatever. It's fair use. It's fair use. Okay, well, then you should grab a little clip and just insert it right here. No, you can't do this. Because I love how the music really is kind of like almost horrific up until this point when they take Maurice by his arms and... You know, start taking him to the carriage. And then at this moment, second 40, the music kind of turns and it becomes kind of like this mysterious, almost problem-solving kind of music where Belle is trying to fix this problem. And she turns to to Djarke and then she turns to Gaston. And then there's this big, like, bum as, as Gaston says, if you marry me. Yeah. And... I remember that being pretty impactful even as a kid, like that music doing that big bum when he says, if, and he's like scratching his face.
0: No! You can't do this! Poor Belle. Oh, it's a shame about your father. You know he's not crazy, Gaston. Hmm, I might be able to clear up this little
1: misunderstanding.
0: If. If what? If you marry me. What? One little word, Belle, that's all it takes. Never. Have it your way. Creepy scratcher.
1: Yeah, and the way he scratches his face is weird. I just don't like anyone using their middle finger to do stuff, to like, you know, type or point or touch things or scratch their face. Yeah. It's just, I guess it's because of today's connotation of the middle finger. Back in the day, it was just the longest finger, so it makes sense, but... His hand position seems weird, yeah, and it's just I don't know it seems unnatural to use one of the the middle fingers in the
0: hand to do anything. It's so much easier to use the pointer finger, but whatever,
1: maybe that's because we never use our middle fingers. <laughs>
0: all right, yeah, good deal, so that is minute sixty seven of Beauty and the Beast. Thank you guys for being here with us today to share this minute. If you have any thoughts, please head over to Facebook. Join our listeners group, Beauty and the Beastly Minute Listeners Library. Let us know what you think. What are your thoughts? Um, Any ideas, theories, things that you didn't agree with on this episode? That's a great place to let us know and we can have a conversation about uh, why you might be wrong or why we might be wrong.
1: (laughs) Put them wrong first.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Of course, we are the experts uh, because... This is our podcast, which you can find on iTunes, Google Play. If this is your first time listening, which probably it not but it might be, head over and subscribe. If you are listening on an app, there should be a subscribe button. Um, But if not, uh, find out where you can subscribe and you'll get all the episodes for free. And we'd love a review on iTunes as well because that helps people to find the podcast. So if you haven't taken the time to leave us a review and you've listened to 67 episodes talking one minute at a time about Beating the Beast, it's time to go and leave a review. By now, you should know if you like the podcast or not. <laughs> so go let other people know, please. If you want to find us on social media, we are on all the social medias. Just search Beastly Minute and you will find us. Carrie, if people want to get a hold of you, what's the best way to do that?
1: Find me on Facebook. I guess
0: (laughs) Carrie doesn't want to talk to you but you can find her on facebook (laughs) try to follow her there um you can find me on all the social medias as well head over to the growler media bio page and i have my links up there that's the best way to get a hold of me
1: until next time we could get you and your friends out of boredom if if what if you subscribe to our podcast and share it Never. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't say never though. <laughs>
0: Take good care of him. Yay.
1: Two rooms. I have an office. Ah My
0: father's not crazy and say, look there she goes, the girl that's strange, no question. And that's one of the ladies. Boom. Second twenty-two minute four.
1: Well, dramatic entrance achieved.
0: Uh, please remember to share this podcast with your friends. Hopefully, they'll love it and they'll react nicely and not like one of our listeners who told us about his friends. They said, tell us again, old man, just how long was the podcast? And he was like, it was, I mean, it was, it it was enormous. I'd say at least 20. No, more like 40 minutes. (laughs) Well, you don't get much crazier than that. It's true, I tell you. Get him out of (laughs) here.
1: We didn't talk about any of that dialogue.
0: Yeah, but it was in the minute.
1: I know, but why didn't we talk about <laughs> it? <laughs> I'm keeping your bones.